1: What? I'm your host, Tom Kearns, and welcome to the Anglo-Saxon England podcast. Episode 30, King Ina the Lawmaker. Of all the kings of Wessex, prior to the reign of King Alfred, Ina is the one with probably the greatest reputation. This rests mostly on the respect afforded to his law code by King Alfred in the preface to his own collection of legal rulings. There, Alfred explicitly sets himself, in a tradition following from Moses and Ina, in making laws for his people. This is high praise, and surely must attract the interest of readers. Who was this Ina? Why are his laws so notable? And does the reality live up to the expectations set by Alfred's praise? In this episode, we will seek to answer these questions and discover that Ina's legacy is decidedly more complicated than a surface reading of Alfred's preface would suggest. King Ina ruled in Wessex from 689 to 726. He claimed descent from Kaolin through Kienegels. He was the son of a West Saxon nobleman named Kenred, and seems to have come from a line of men who were members of the royal dynasty, but who were never themselves king at least not before Aina. Instead, his grandfather, Chaelwald was the brother of King Kienergils, and of course, through Kienergils, he was related back, ultimately, to Serdage. We don't know much about how Einar became king. Bede says very little about Einar on the whole, and the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle doesn't record any details about his rise to the kingship. We must then speculate a little from what Aina did as king, His reign was characterised by a keen interest in order, and from this we can suggest that perhaps in the wake of Cadwalla's military adventurism and sudden abdication, Wessex was left in an unstable position. As king, Ina was keen to try and steady the ship. To this end, Ina promulgated the first law code to survive from among the West Saxons. Indeed, it's the only West Saxon law code to survive from before the reign of King Alfred. In the preface to his law code, Aina says that he had been consulting with the chief men of his kingdom about how to ensure the salvation of their souls and security of the kingdom. To that end, he promulgated his laws so that order would be established and so that none of his aldermen or subjects would pervert his will. It seems then that Aina was keen to use his laws as a means to bring order and uniformity to Wessex, particularly by binding his alderman to his will, a detail which may lend credence to the notion that he feared their ability to create internal instability. We are able to date the law code to fairly early in Aina's reign. In the preface, he lists three men who advised him in its creation, his father Kenred, Hadi the Bishop of Winchester, and Aorcanwald Bishop of Worcester. B tells us that Aorcanwald died in 694, so the laws must have been created before that date. This places the legislative meeting of the Witan in the first five years of Aina's reign, confirming the suspicion that the need for order was a primary concern of Aina's upon taking the throne. Before getting into the laws themselves, it would be remiss of me not to talk a bit more about Alfred's treatment of them, and specifically the question his treatment raises over whether we have Aina's laws in their entirety. The only copy we have is a part of the preface to King Alfred's laws issued in the late 9th century. In his preface, Alfred explicitly says that he removed early laws which he didn't agree with, leaving open the question of what is missing from Einar's laws. Unless we're able to find another independent version of Eina's laws anywhere, we will never know if anything is missing. Despite this caveat though, Ina's laws are still extremely important, and offer a glimpse not only into Ina's aims as a king, but also into the society of Wessex in the late 7th and early 8th century. The first laws found in the code make it very clear that Wessex was still not fully Christianised by the 690s. Some of the earliest parts of the law code, for example, mandate that a baby is to be baptised within 30 days of birth, with a fine of 30 shillings if these 30 days elapse and a fine of everything the guilty party possesses if a baby dies unbaptized, The laws also mandate that a slave ordered by his master to work on a Sunday is to be freed, and slaves who work on Sundays without their master's knowledge are to be flogged. Besides enforcing such aspects of basic Christian behaviour, the laws also enforce the payment of church dues on Martin Mass, as well as establish the principle of sanctuary, in which a person liable for the death penalty or flogging will have the punishment remitted if they're able to reach a church. The laws also establish that a Christian, defined as a communicant, is to have their oath favoured over a non-Christian if a criminal case comes to oath swearing, thus establishing practising Christians as a favoured class in Ina's Wessex. Ina, clearly a Christian himself, is attempting to use his royal authority to further Christianize Wessex, both through harsh punishments for failing to adhere to Christian practices, and through making non-Christians into effectively second-class citizens. We know that Ina was a committed patron of monasteries, and was close friends with both Aachenwald and Huddy. It seems that by his day the ruling house of Wessex was firmly Christian, but to what extent paganism remained a real problem among the West Saxons is debatable. Ina's major concern seems to have been with Wessex having a large population of unbaptized people. His decree that children are to be baptised within 30 days, and the specification that communicants' oaths be preferred over non-communicants, strongly suggests that he was attempting to end the practice exemplified by men like Cadwallader to delay baptism until death approached. Rather than seeing his laws as a sign of continued paganism then, Ina may well represent an attempt to pull Wessex, out of the missionary phase of church history, and into a more Christianized state. In this, we probably see the influence of Aachenwald and Huddy, who, as bishops, oversaw the pastoral care of the West Saxon people. The strong influence of Hadi in particular over Ina can be seen in the king's tensions with the Archbishop of Canterbury. Hadi's diocese of Winchester was enormous, as was usually the case for missionary churches. Canterbury, still imbued with reforming zeal from the recent archiepiscopacy of Theodore of Tarsus, wanted Ina to break up the Diocese of Winchester, so that pastoral care could be more effectively distributed to the people. Ina refused to do so until after Hadi's death in 705, at which point Ina finally divided the lands of Winchester's diocese between Winchester and the Bishopric of Sherborne, if the mandates regarding Christian behaviour and baptism do reflect the influence of Eockenwald and Huddy, then it seems that rather than simply refusing to impoverish his friend, Aina delayed to break up Huddy's landholdings because the bishop was overseeing an initiative for greater Christianization, which Aina didn't want to endanger. The decrees relating to religion make up only a small part of Ina's laws. By far the greater part of them, are concerned with secular affairs, such as the punishments for various crimes and the payment of Wareguild. From them, we can build up some sense of what life was like in Einar's Wessex. The laws show us, for example, that in Einar's day, the system of land tenure was quite advanced in Wessex. The laws dealing with wandering cattle make it clear that the West Saxons were practising open-field agriculture, in which a lord owned several large fields, which were apportioned out to free men in strips. Aina's laws control the payments due to one free man if another free man's cattle wander onto his strip of land and damage it. It seems interesting that the king was either required or possibly took it upon himself to intervene in such disputes, which must have been fairly commonplace, which show that Aina attempted to rule and regulate his kingdom far more directly than had really been evidenced before him. Besides information about agriculture, the laws also legislate that both nobles and freemen were required to serve in the fyrd, FYRD, that is to provide military service, if called upon, or face hefty fines if they refused. Another interesting requirement of Aina's laws relates to the oaths sworn in the event of a homicide. If a man was accused of murder, he required oath helpers to swear to his innocence, Aina's laws required at least one of these helpers to be of high rank, that is, to have a high guild. This strongly suggests that the oath of a noble was valued more highly than the oath of a peasant. It also marks a move away from a strictly kin-based legal system. A man couldn't just rely on his kin, but had to seek support among his social superiors or the clergy, thus suggesting that Wessex under Ina was moving out of a tribal society and into a more hierarchical social structure. Not quite the feudalism that we would see in the later Middle Ages, but some intermediate zone between a tribal society and a feudal society. The laws also make it clear that thievery was a major concern for Ina. His laws litigate that upon leaving a trackway, a person was to shout or blow their horn to announce themselves, so that they wouldn't be taken for a thief. This implies that thieves hiding in the woods were a problem. In the spirit of maintaining order, it may not be a coincidence then that it's in Aina's law codes that we find the first reference to shires in Wessex. The shire was ruled over by the alderman, who was responsible for seeing that the king's justice was enforced. In origin, the shires probably reflect older tribal divisions, and may well have been a hangover from the days of multiple kingship in Wessex, but under Ina, they'd been co-opted to serve the will of the king, and ensure that his justice was properly implemented. One last interesting feature of Ina's laws are his attempts to legislate for both the British and the English within his realm. As Wessex expanded westwards into Dumnonia, larger numbers of Britons came to live under West Saxon rule. Ina was apparently so concerned with this, that he attempted to define the place the Britons held in West Saxon society. The results are quite discriminatory, and put the Britons at a clear disadvantage when dealing with their Saxon neighbours. Specifically, a Britons' wergild, wergild meaning literally man price, being the monetary value of a person's life, was half that of an Englishman's. Wergild was also the primary indicator of social rank, as I've said. Thus, the more expensive ones were guild, the more important they were, and, as we've seen, the more valuable their legal testimony. Thus, Britons were certainly placed at a social disadvantage under Ina's rule. Materially, it seems that Ina's reign coincided with a time of prosperity for Wessex. We see this particularly in the foundation of Hamwich, modern-day Southampton, as a trading settlement with a population of about 5,000 people, a metropolis by the standards of the time. It had a regular planned layout, suggesting royal planning, and the inhabitants were mostly specialised craftsmen. The presence of imported goods like pottery and whetstone, along with many sheaters silver coins minted in Frisia, indicates that Hamwich was a trading hub within Aina's kingdom and probably was created as a West Saxon rival to other wicks like London or Ipswich. It seems then that Ina's reign, at least at its beginning, was one concerned primarily with stability and encouraging prosperity within Wessex. This wouldn't last though, and for all his success within Wessex, Ina's reign was a more mixed time for the West Saxons in terms of international politics, And this would ultimately come to undo Aina.
0: History is the greatest adventure story. But does it ever leave you wondering what the women were doing all that time? And with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to
1: Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts. I want to take this opportunity to thank you for listening and say how much I greatly appreciate every single one of you who's listening to this. If you are... Enjoying it, if you enjoy this show, it would be extremely helpful if you could like, comment, subscribe, leave a rating, preferably five stars, or a positive rating on whatever platform it is you use. It really boosts the show in the algorithms that these various platforms use, and it helps to get get it exposed to more people. You could also consider supporting us on Patreon, where you'll get various types of bonus content, including bonus episodes, and as of fairly recently, access to transcripts of all the previous episodes, if you want to engage with the show in that way. Speaking of Patreon, I also have some patrons to thank, so sincerely thank you to Claire Hamilton Russell and Cameron Bradley. Your support is extremely appreciated, and I hope you are enjoying the bonus content. Aina struggled to maintain the overlordship of southern England that Cadwalla had created. Upon becoming king, Aina was forced to settle with King Witchred of Kent. If you'll recall last episode, Cadwalla had initially invaded Kent and set up his brother Mull as a sub-king there. When Mull was killed in a Kentish revolt, Cadwalla had invaded again and assumed personal rule of the kingdom, after which he imposed heavy tribute in punishment for the death of his brother. Upon Cadwalla's abdication, Kent fell into a period of chaos, in which multiple men contended for the throne. One of these men, Witred, succeeded in unifying the kingdom again once he became king in 690. It's unclear what happened in the years immediately after becoming king, but the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle says that in 694, Aina and Witred came to terms over the death of Mull, with Kent paying Wessex compensation. In return, Ina allowed Witred to remain independent. Witred also is famous for promulgating his own law code, and an interesting feature of this latter code is the use of the West Saxon term ysith for a nobleman instead of the Kentish term eolakund, which we find in the earlier Kentish law codes. This shift into West Saxon terminology has been interpreted as a sign of cooperation between Aina and Witred, with the intent of creating a common legal culture, but it could also be seen as a sign of encroaching Saxon influence on the small Jutish kingdom of Kent. D.P. Kirby suggests that the joint issuing of the law codes by Aina and Witred may be a direct response to the settlement of hostilities between Wessex and Kent in 694. This is speculation and we can't know, neither of them say that that was the case, but it seems interesting that both of these kings issued law codes in fairly quick succession and that there are clear commonalities between them. Besides Kent, other southern kingdoms which had fallen to Cadwalla, such as Surrey and Sussex, were seemingly in dispute during Aina's reign, indicating that he lost control of them also. Sussex, for a time, was seemingly under Ina's domination, as it was ruled by a man named Nothhelm, who's identified in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle as a kinsman of Ina. The two are also recorded as waging war together against the Domnonians, suggesting that they were indeed in a military alliance of some kind. However, this subjugation of Sussex apparently ended with Nothhelm's death around 722 since in that year, Ina invaded the South Saxon kingdom in order to subdue it, suggesting that it had gone into revolt. Even when Nothelm was on the throne, though, Sussex and Surrey both seem to have been a source of trouble for Ina, since on several occasions, beginning as early as 704, he had to pressure the kings of the two kingdoms to hand over West Saxon fugitives seeking refuge in the woods that ran along their borders. This also suggests that Aina's plans to regulate West Saxon society were not without their enemies, a fact that would come to seriously undermine his reign in the later years of his life. To the west of Wessex, Aina's reign marked a resurgence of West Saxon expansion into the lands of Dumnonia. King Geraint, the king of Dumnonia, was a frequent target of Aina's conquests, but it is difficult to tell exactly how successful was Aina's advance westwards. In the Anglo-Saxon sources, the implication is that Ina's victory over Geraint in 710 finally saw Devon absorbed into Wessex, and the end of a unified kingdom of Dumnonia, since after this point, the Britons to the west ceased to be called the West Welsh, and instead become the Cornish. However, Welsh chronicles such as the Annales Cambriae record at least one more victorious battle by the Dumnonians against Wessex in 721 or 722 at a place called Hehil, which is only said to have occurred among the Cornish, but which suggests that Cornish strength was not totally broken with the fall of Geraint. To make things more complicated, in Welsh heroic legend, Geraint quickly became associated with a legendary 5th century hero called Geraint Mab-Ebin, a figure associated in some stories with King Arthur. This makes it very difficult to reconstruct the history of Aina's wars in the west, since it is impossible to tell what about Geraint is historical and what is legendary. Something seems to have happened during Aina's reign which permanently changed the nature of British power to the west of Wessex, and this seems to have been associated with the death of Geraint. But other than this, it's difficult to say more. It seems clear, though, that where Ina's relations with the English to his east were not entirely successful, he had much more success dealing with the Britons, and in this, he marks a return to the old West Saxon practice of harassing the Britons, which Cadwalla had briefly paused with his turn to the east. Beginning around 721, Ina began to face internal rebellions. In that year, he is said in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, to have killed an Atheling, that is a prince, named Kinawulf, probably a distant relation vying for the throne. The next year, his queen Athelberg demolished the earthen fortification built at Taunton, which Ina had built around the year 700. Possibly, this was done in revenge for the killing of Kinawulf, suggesting that he was possibly a kinsman of hers. Immediately after this, another Atheling, Eildbert, presumably in exile, began to move between Surrey and Sussex, raising support for a move against Ina. In response, in 725, Ina invaded Sussex and killed Ealdbert. Why Ina began to face such internal hostility in these later years is unknown, but it's probably got something to do with his centralizing tendencies. Usually, nobles don't like to have their liberties stepped upon, so it's not hard to imagine that Ina's reign irked some of them. The trouble on the Surrey Sussex border may also indicate that Eildbert was encouraged by the growing power of Mercia under Athelbald, or the resurgence of Kentish influence in Sussex and Surrey. Whatever caused the unrest, it resulted in 726 in Ina's abdication, and, as Bede says, his choice to leave the kingdom to the younger men. With Athelberg, Ina went on pilgrimage to Rome, where he is traditionally said to have founded the Schola Saxonum or Saxon school, a resting place for English pilgrims during their time in the city. Upon leaving Wessex, Aina vanishes from history, and presumably died in Rome, but we don't know exactly when. The kings who succeeded him lacked the innovative spirit that he had, but that is a story for another time. For now, it's time to reflect on the legacy of Aina. Partly because of Alfred's respect for his law code, Aina has long held a prominent place in the history of Wessex, For his creativity, he's to be commended, and his code certainly provides valuable insight into West Saxon society in the late 7th and early 8th centuries. But beyond his laws, Ines' reign is more mixed. He was unable to maintain the preeminent position in the South won by Cadwalla, and his centralising tendencies seem to have inspired resentment among his people. In the West, he was seemingly more successful, but just how much more is hard to gauge due to the problems of the evidence. Thus, it is difficult to tell how truly successful Ina's legal experiment was. Certainly, no other West Saxon kings before Alfred followed him in promulgating law codes, something that sets Wessex apart from Kent, where several kings followed Athelbert in producing laws. This suggests that Ina's legacy didn't inspire future kings in the way that Athelbert's did. Even Alfred, with his comment that he removed laws with which he didn't agree, was not totally enamoured with Ina's legacy. Ina then seems not to quite live up to the expectations set by his link to Alfred the Great, and truthfully, it is difficult to say to what extent his time on the throne marked a real revolution in Anglo-Saxon power, and to what extent it was a failed experiment. It didn't leave that much of an impression on the West Saxons, And certainly, the setbacks that Wessex faced in international politics suggest that by many conventional measures, Ina's kingship was not, in fact, a particularly successful one. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Anglo-Saxon England podcast. Once again, I've been your host, Tom Kearns, and I hope you'll join us for the next episode. Until next time.